Escape Pod 410 August 22nd 2013 Nutshell by Jeff Wickstrom Welcome to Escape Pod, the weekly science fiction podcast. This week's story comes to us from Jeff Wickram and is, up until now, unpublished. The narrator this week is... Hi! I work here. I also work at pseudopod.org, blog at alistairstewart.com, and write for sfx.co.uk, Bleeding Cool, and Cubicle 7 games, where I've worked on both the Doctor Who and Primeval RPGs. You can find me on Twitter at... at... Obvious Empire Strikes Back joke there... Alistair Stewart, but you can also find me here, where I am, but also those other places, which is kind of the point both of this intro and the story. So, make sure you get the internal decor just right, because it's story time, and that means you're going to be looking at it for a while. Nutshell by Geoffrey Wickstrom Carpet Ocean, Stretching Over Miles Hills and valleys and ravines, all upholstered. The green indoor-outdoor gives way to blue as land gives way to sea, but the texture never changes. When it rains, as it sometimes does, the drops pass through the carpet without making contact, as though they, or it, aren't really there. It's there enough for me to walk on, at least, though spongy in some places and firm in others, as though it conceals hidden frames or foundations. Out on the blue carpet sea, it feels stretched, tight, as though I walk on a drumhead. Maybe if I cracked it open, I would find a vast, dark expanse of water, lit by undersea jack-o'-lanterns and holes that show the sky, without breaking up the carpet underside ceiling. None of it's real, of course. That probably goes without saying. It's funny, I wasn't supposed to experience time at all. When they loaded us onto the ship, we were told that the travel would be instantaneous from our perspectives. One minute lying down in the big white plastic tombs, the next freshly decanted and opening raw new eyes. We would transition seamlessly from fluorescence and anesthesia to the light of some distant new sun. Certainly I have no memory of consciousness during departure. I wouldn't have wanted to be aware during that dreadful acceleration which pulped our bones and wrecked our flesh. By then, they had already guided us from our old bodies into the safety of simulation and storage. This curated world never bruises me or shows me sharp edges. Trees are padded poles, slick vinyl trunks capped by rubbery green spheres 15-20 feet up. Stair steps run up the hillsides, though even the steepest rises are shallow enough I don't really need the footholds. Fat plush toys, pink and green and blue gamble across the plains and mimic living beasts grazing carpet grass or drinking from carpet brooks. They ignore me, even when I shove or punch them. Do I dream? In dreaming, should I question my dream? Should I feel some continuity of experience? I can loop around, circle back and pass the same stand of vinyl tree sculptures four times without noticing any discrepancies. Do I simply lack a capacity to recognise breaches of continuity? Was that cottage always there? 
I think it wasn't. Still, it's mine, and not unwelcome. I know it. I don't fear it. A woollen cube windowed and doored with a taut wedge of canvas for a roof. I press my hand into the salmon-coloured exterior wall, and it sinks in a half inch and leaves a deep handprint that fades. Slowly. The flannel texture of the wall exactly matches a blanket I remember from childhood. One just that shade of pink. The vast hall within stretches far too large to fit in that flannel cube exterior. I step onto a hardwood floor under a thick layer of wax. The walls rise up to the limits of my vision, shadows and smoke hiding the ceiling. Apples, each bigger than my head, glow redly from above. They and the poles skewering them make for an uneven forest of lampposts. I find the space comforting, although I've never been here before. This is the stupidest place I've seen, says the stranger. I think he must have stepped out from behind an ersatz lamppost, and I've been to at least 1,200 different scapes today. What's wrong with you? He wears a suit the colour of burnished copper that complements his auburn hair. I gape. What? I hadn't expected company, nor have I spoken in I don't know how long. Anyway, planet fall in 20 years. I've opened up the vents, air this all out. He twirls his hand, indicating the hall? I fix on the part I think I can understand. Twenty years? Twenty years, four months, and a number of days, minutes, and seconds you really don't care about, he says. The stranger eyes me disdainfully. Are those footy pyjamas? I stammer defensively. No. The creases in his suit could cut paper. Eh, I'd change if I were you, and leave the glowing fruit at home. He adds, glancing up at the lamps. You want a screw? Uh, um, yeah, I mumble, embarrassed by my own inability to form a coherent word, much less sentence. He shrugs. Nah, foul. You'd be surprised how often. Anyway, be seeing you. He steps uncomfortably close to me. I flinch, which he ignores. He jabs a button on the wood panel wall just behind me, one I had not noticed. I hadn't noticed the elevator doors next to the button either, until they open up behind me. Wait, what? I ask as, finally, the cobwebs clear. Who are you? I'm your captain, Dylan, he says as he steps into the elevator. It's been fun. Not really. I'll go, I'll go. Yeah, really on that one. Mind the time. It runs the ship, Myra explains. Coffee? No, thank you, I say carefully. When you say runs the ship, we sit in Maya's parlour some amount of time after my encounter with the captain. Maya is my next-door neighbour. After exiting my flannel cabin, I saw her vast steel cube towering over the soft corners of my cotton world. Inside, everything's right-angles and gleaming white and monorails, but I suppose I'm one to talk. Maya snaps her fingers and makes a sort of pointing gesture over my shoulder. I turn and see that she signalled one of her servants. The gleaming chrome cube spins without disturbing the coffee set atop it and slides smoothly back the way it came. Can't believe all you made was stuffed animals, she says, sipping her own cup. She sits in a hollow steel egg, her legs tucked up under her. I have to make do with a chrome cube for a bench. I mean, really, that's so dumb. I wish you'd change out of those ridiculous felt things. I'm sorry, shouldn't have said that. It's okay. It's just, you know, it's just been me for so long. You're only the fifth I've seen since Captain. I'm sorry. Please don't take offence. It's okay. I wasn't doing anything consciously except making myself comfortable. I don't know how this works. Well, I don't either, but I asked. Captain, I interrupted. 
who is captain? I said... Maya's voice twists into a whine. She makes a show of closing her eyes and taking a deep breath. It's the ship's AI, she says as though I'm an especially dim-witted child. The whole thing is automated, but something needs to keep track of everything, so the captain. I mean, it couldn't be a colonist. Most of you were illegals, and besides, I wouldn't trust my mother for 300 years without relief. We could have taken shifts, or I trail off as Maya rolls her eyes. Whatever, I guess that decision was made years ago. Centuries ago. Centuries. Fine. We lapse into a long silence. Maya sips her virtual coffee. I think this is going well, I begin. Almost simultaneously, she says, you should be going. I nod. Of course, it was It was nice meeting you, Maya barks. She holds a coffee up close to her chin, as though for protection. I nod again as I rise to my feet, but say nothing else. I feel her eyes on me as I leave her parlour, and fortunately one of her little cubes appears to escort me back outside, where I might spend weeks wandering through shiny, white hallways. Afterwards, I walk to clear my head. I'm used to travelling for as long as I want, hours at least, if not days, never tiring nor seeing any break in the padded expanse. I keep the hatch into Maya's steel world at my back, but before I go anywhere near as far as I want, the fabric ground gives way to hard asphalt roads and concrete sidewalk. Peeling paint on clapboard siding, thick bundles of wires connecting the houses to high wooden poles, barking dogs, broken glass, another neighbour. I decline to meet this one and turn right. I tried to keep the sidewalks on my left while staying within the familiar carpeted landscape, but it falls away, despite my best efforts. Vinyl trees slide up between me and the concrete, the ground twisting under me in a way I see, but can't feel. What I see makes me nauseous, and I close my eyes for just a moment. When I open them, carpet and padding surround me out to the limits of vision. Long story short, I walk. I find the edge of my realm and the way to another's beyond it. I turn away, and the seam of the world dances back, only to be replaced by another, some amount of time and distance later. This happens seven or eight times, with a different neighbour each time. Claustrophobia. I'm hemmed in. I spent close to 300 years in a pleasant haze, and now, mounting panic. Once I hear someone shouting in the distance. It's probably hello, but too indistinct to really be sure. And I turn away, and I move away from the source of the noise. As it fades, I climb a high, carpeted hill. Looking down into the secluded valley below, I find, or make, I guess, a bedspread cottage. Jack-o'-lanterns light it, beanbags furnish it, but it has a door. And has a door I can bar. That's important. I sink into a beanbag and stare at the door. Other than the bar, it exactly duplicates my bedroom door when I was around seven, right down to the stickers of cartoon cars. Over the river and through the woods I wander. My flannel forest isn't proof against outside invaders. I learn when Milo rides his death steed up and over and nearly tramples me. I met Milo the day before, decided he was best avoided, and then there he is, trying to kill me with a thing shaped only vaguely like a horse. It's best to keep moving, so I go from biome to biome, a cityscape of vast yellow terraces and dizzying canyons, blue-green seas with pearly white sand, garish tropical flowers a cartoon of a Caribbean vacation, the tepid beige hallways of an endless hotel, 
Doors ripped off their hinges. Warm water ankle-deep in every room. I try to imagine the people who dreamed them up. I do my best to avoid them. When I hear noise, I go the other way. I imagine myself a sort of reviewer, evaluating biomes and describing them to a nonchalant audience. Well, the ocean of blood was a bit much. Ostentatious, I thought. Over the top, even. The visitor soon sours on the stench of decay, while the militaristic imagery projected onto the roof fills one with a sense of unquiet. We live only to die, this world says. I hesitate to envision the sour heart whose subconscious created such a virtual space. Dilnabari. Data links. Jonas Crow, why do you keep asking me that? Captain shrugs. Guys are more relaxed after a screw, and humans tend to trust and like their sexual partners. You know, over strangers, I mean. That was the least reassuring way you could possibly have answered that question. I've noticed that of the subset of humans who woke up ill, 100% declined to screw. Ill? Ill? The captain mimics. Yeah, ill. Antisocial and, and avoidant personality disorders, mostly. You guys are always nuts. I mean, don't get me started. You agreed to become colonists. Agreed is kind of a strong word. He shrugs. Whatever. Boo-hoo. Deal with your debt or die in tenements or get shot into space. I don't care. But the thing is, a lot of you guys are crazy. I mean, a lot, a lot. I mean, a lot, a lot, a lot. I'd cite figures, but it would only upset you. That would upset me? The gunshots, the screaming, the blood, the robots, that's all fine, but numbers would upset me? I'd hear my voice twist into a shriek I can't control and grimace. Why are you here? To safeguard the colonists. Fly the ship. Captain stuff, he frowns. Duh. No, no. I mean, why are you here talking to me now? Oh! Oh, that! I'm pretty sure, this is just me going on heuristics and holistics, but I'm, I'm pretty sure you're the most sane colonist left. I know, right? I was as surprised as you. I look at him. Anyway, Captain closes his throat. Your comrades, in more or less rationality, all hold up. You're an aberration, walking around like you do, so I figured you might have something useful to contribute to the situation. <sighs> the situation? You know... The crazy people. Can't very well let them loose on planet. Get your head in the game, Dylan. Well, I don't... I mean, what? Dude. Okay. Fine. Listen, I don't... How many years until Planetfall? Dude, Planetfall was three years ago. I've been building the autonomic systems, tinkering with landscaping. I could show you. I haven't decanted in anyone because of the, you know, madness. The mad... Why are you asking me? Shit, fuck, dude, I don't know. This is a fucked up situation, right? None of the simulations they ran on Earth had everybody going crazy. I mean, you guys just woke up and you were fine. One or two get complexes, maybe? Nothing like this. Well, I rub my temples. The notion that it has been decades since I first met Captain sinks in, and I have to sit down, collapsing on the spongy pretend turf. Maybe you should just go ahead and decant people. We'll be fine once we're in bodies. Walking around, breathing. Yeah! No! I was lying a minute ago. Uh, I did decant some of you guys. A test case. A dozen. It didn't go... Well, they all died. From his tone, it was clear they hadn't died of typhoid. I sigh. 
Well, I, I don't know. If you can tell who's crazy and who isn't, could you just decant the sane ones? That's what Maya said. I don't know, though. I mean, A, there's only like 74 of you and 14,789 of them, so big loss of life. And B, I'm pretty sure you guys aren't enough to maintain and run a colony. Maybe if... How are you at child-rearing? Oh, no, 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 no. I throw up my hands. Can't you make nanny robots? I remember there's supposed to be ten robots per colonist. Yeah, actually, they're not that great. Kind of shit, actually. Um, they break things. I, um... Let's just take it as read that I tried skipping you guys entirely, and it didn't work out. It just gets worse and worse, I mutter. The captain holds up his hands. Hey, now, hey, you're probably imagining something way worse than what actually happened. I mean, it was all simulation, right? No actual infants were cloned or harmed. Walk that one back. I'm not sure I believe you. Whatevs, the really revolting part is this is the most productive conversation I've had in 12 years. Sometime later, Captain finds me again. I hike across a grey wasteland under a grey sky. Smooth granite boulders hewn into the various platonic solids stud the landscape. I know this place's owner, or creator, or dreamer. More specifically, I met him. Franz, whose bunker a hundred feet below possesses all the home comforts, like an endless supply of mac and cheese and highlights from a lifetime of memories, mostly of television shows, playing on dozens of screens. When I spelunked through the winding tunnels below, Franz spotted me and cordially invited me in for some shaved ice and conversation. My acceptance took him aback, however, I soon realised I had intruded beyond where I was welcome. All my encounters with my fellows are like that. Sometimes they smile, sometimes they shriek, and sometimes they invite me to join them in some ineffable private game they don't or won't explain. Once I realised that none of us can really hurt one another, I lost much of my caution and I began to seek company out. The closing hymns of the seven princesses told me that I should not wander so carelessly. The low red lights meant nothing to me, but everything to she whose sky it was. But I digress. Captain finds me again. Eventually, good news, he says without preamble. I licked the heuristics problem. There was a heuristics problem? Yeah, fixed now. Everything's fine. Great, I say, and keep walking. He doesn't move, but somehow fails to recede as I walk away from him. It makes my eyes hurt. So, on your end, he says, you come up with anything? My end. I figure it's inevitable, so I stop and sit on a purplish dodecahedron the size of a welfare crate. The aberrant personality thing. I did that, you did this, right? I don't think I would have agreed to that. Well, we need to come up with something. Nobody else is any help either. Oh, speaking of useless people, Maya says hi. Okay. Anyway, the captain cracks his knuckles. Let's sort this out. Now, about one in a thousand of you are rational enough. I'm willing to zox you into a clone body. We've got plenty of material to clone with. But with 0.1% of the expected population level, we will not have good long-term genetic diversity. Could I just stay here? I ask. I don't know that I want to stay here, but the prospect of waking up on an alien world fills me with deep ambivalence. Would that be an option? I know! I know! I know. You're not the first one to ask me that. One note, you guys, sometimes I swear. But yeah! Doesn't matter to you personally, you're staying put. I could copy you into a new body, but you wouldn't know anything about it. I need you as the template, is all. Other you, in the clone body, wakes up, 
probably freaks out a bit because he remembers me saying this and then suddenly he's got a whole new set of psychoses and identity issues to resolve and geez maybe talking to you about this was a really bad idea the captain makes wild hand gestures as he speaks which convey less information than he probably assumes i feel better actually i say it removes the uncertainty Knowing I'm not going anywhere, even if some poor Zox sap with my memories is doomed to life and death in the body, it gives me a little security. Sweet! Concern redacted. If you're cool with that, how do you feel about being a woman? There's basically no gender disparity in the mostly sane population, and more women will be there for breeding, which, I mean, I don't even know why they didn't just send. Wait, what? How, how would that even work? Oh, it's easy! I just clone one of the women and Zox your template into that body. You can do that. You're sure you could do that? The captain chewed his lip for a moment. Yes. There you go. A hundred bodies, different and diverse bodies. You fill them full of copies of me, then you add a hundred Myers, a hundred Francis. Not France. The captain winces. Not France. But yeah, I can see what you're saying. Uh, okay, I'll, I'll think about that one. Thank you. Wait, but I trail off as I'm again alone on a grey polyhedral wasteland. One first notices a certain spring to the ground, a resilience suggestive of trampolines or bouncy castles. The cascading colours across the sky, however, draw one's attention and gaze upward. Shapes pulled from some enormous lexicon of corporate trademarks dance and flow into one another. Yellow arches on a red field become a twisted white ribbon on that same red background, which fades in turn into a circle with two smaller circles overlapping, which then becomes a stylized piece of fruit with a stylized bite mark. Go ahead and stare, that sky seems to say. You don't need to look where you're going. Stare at me. And in one sense, this message is accurate. As one strides carelessly forward, inevitably tripping, the bouncy turf presents injury or discomfort. However, in falling, one invariably collapses onto one of the weed churches which dot the landscape. Artful cathedrals a mere few inches high, each filled to bursting with its desperate congregation. They pray to gods that do not understand for salvation from the random crushings. Their gods ignore them. A sad lesson, but no sadder than many. Tulunabari. Data links. Instants flow into one another. Lacking a wristwatch or the inclination to count seconds like some human metronome, I soon let go of any notion of timekeeping. One vision becomes another, and on and further, and into an ever-changing sea, wine-dark and fecund with possibilities. I wonder, at times, where the captain carried out his plan, whether another of me was now or would soon be awakening on an alien world. I envy, I pity, that other me, sometimes both at once when I think of him and captain. I rarely think of either of them. The next time my eyes find his eyes, I bestride a salt-limbed merchantman pulled through a rank and oozing brine by troops of trained seahorses. The sunset burns the whole sky red and pink and yellow. Dissonant orchestral music swells with every crashing wave, and when I stamp my feet, the noise it makes is not thud or clomp, but steward. Is this my dream or another's? Does it matter? Dylan! You're looking well. Want to screw? I'm kidding. The captain steps out from behind the tall mast. I wanted to let you know. Um, we're shutting down the simulation maintenance. Too inhumane, forcing you guys to continue in this artificial afterlife, is what they said. But nobody wanted to pull the plug on the ghosts of their so many great sort of not really grandparents. So instead, we're sending you off on your own microsatellite. 
you should be fine indefinitely. But hey, stuff does degrade. Asteroids. I'm sure you won't feel it, though. Just a cessation of the program is all. You'll be fine. Up until that point, obviously. I squint. It has been an unguessable span of moments since we last spoke. I have thought of him often. Now he appears at last, only to utter ineffable prophecy of doom. I stroke the long beard I have decided to have grown and mull on his odd words for a long moment. He looks exactly the same. Immaculate, broad-shouldered, slightly bored. Yes, I say finally. Yes, he eyes me quizzically. I, I mean, this is happening, Dylan. I'm just giving you a courtesy. I summon all the gravity I can muster. Yes, I would like to screw. <laughs> difficult for me not to view this as a kind of completely unconnected companion piece to Saving Alan Idol from a few weeks ago. I love how Jeff's completely flipped the perspective here, so instead of the usual, and let's face it, often pretty dull, now we will tramp out across this land, settle it, probably get involved in a heavy-handed metaphor about the new world and fight monsters style plot, we get a remarkably breezy look at the passage of time in virtual space. As an aside, by the way, and before the clacking of enraged keyboards explaining how all colony stories are in fact great art and embody the golden age of sense of wonder of Flash Gordon, etc., I count the Coyote series by Alan Steele, Legacy of Herot by Larry Niven and Jerry Pornell, and Pandorum, directed by Christian Alvart amongst my favourite SF. I'm in the choir. I just sometimes get bored with the amount of times we sing the same song. The thing is... It'd be really easy to do this as an absolutely bog-standard hell-is-other-people's-internal-decor piece, but Jeff's way too smart for that. What we get instead is a gentle look inside someone's head when they're completely alone and largely okay with that. It's a very different take on the outsider principle, and one which has more teeth than it may first seem to. Firstly, because it's pretty clear the colony is having the opposite of fun for a good long time, and secondly, because Jeff's lead is the sort of character that doesn't show up in this sort of story enough for me. He's smart and different, enough to be an outsider, but grounded and sensible enough to be Captain's go-to guy. Secondly, by the way, I love how Captain's subroutines clearly don't involve any form of subtlety or tact. It's good, solid algebra. Sex plus bad news equals soften blow, but it, it's still pretty gutsy to be so upfront about it. The clincher for me, though, is the ending. There's a certain heroism in not only agreeing to be a blank slate, but also agreeing to be split like this. It's a theme we've been playing with for a while now, and each author who's done it has approached it in an equally different, equally interesting way. Jeff's take reminded me of nothing more than the excellent The Matrix tie-in story Neil Gaiman wrote. It's about an unusual, outsized man who it turns out has been flash-grown by the machines to assist with something kind of awkward. I won't spoil the outcome for you, especially as it's collected in fragile things and is well worth your time. There's the same thing you get here, though. A slightly surprised, slightly crumbled hero, not so much answering the call to adventure as working out that his adventure isn't just his anymore. There's variation of experience here, too. A hero who gets to experience the best and worst. That steel cube decor is lousy of literally both worlds. Nicely done. And now... Here's Nathan with feedback for episode 405, The Vestigial Girl. Greetings and salutations. Assistant Editor Nathan here with the feedback for episode 406, Freya in the Sunlight, 
by Gregory Norman Bossert. This was the story of an artificially intelligent war drone that either missed the point completely or understood it way better than its creator. Reaction was positive but oddly mild, with many people professing a fondness for this general type of story and praise for this particular story while still feeling a sort of general malaise for no reason anyone could decipher. Electric Paladin wrote, Freya was built to make war in the way that we wish we could make war. I think a lot of people like to see war as a clean, abstract, pure, and glorious, as a clash of nation on nation, ideal on ideal. We don't want to think that we hate and fear our opponents. We want to think that our interests conflict with theirs, and we'll use military force to decide who gets what they want and who has to do without. This, however, is total bull. War is not clean, it's awful and hellish, and people die or come home broken, and we do it because we allow our hate, greed, and fear to influence the decision-making process. Freya was built to make war in the way we imagined war to be, and as a result, she wasn't able to do it. To which Adrian H. had an interesting addendum. One thing Electric Paladin didn't mention were the religious aspects of the story, or maybe worship and ritual would be a better term. Freya's reinvention of the call and response and something akin to prayer. Having that emergent from her newly discovered sense of beauty was nicely done. Well, this story definitely rewarded thought and analysis, so if you've got some thoughts to share, head down to our forums and chat it up. Join us next week when the comments for episode 407 decide to become an impromptu Shakespeare revival instead. See you then. Thanks, Nathan. And speaking, as we were, of feedback, it's time for an elegant segue. We're in the middle of canvassing opinion for a major revamp of all three shows' websites. We're looking at how the websites present themselves to the audience, and there are some things we know we'd like to change. So what we'd like to know is if there's anything you'd like us to change. What do you like? What don't you like? What's broken? Are there formatting issues for your browser? Do you like the sites just fine? Do you long for a skate pod to have a donations button that sounds as cool as the pseudopod one that says feed the pod? Any feedback is good, as long as it's constructive. So tell us the good and the bad, and help us improve the sites for everybody. To do so, please join our forum, if you haven't already done so, and go to the Administrivia Escape Artist Incorporated subforum. The thread's called, We Want Your Feedback, and we do. Escape Pod will return next week with Loss with Chalk Diagrams by Lily Yu. It will remain a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and be released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. And your quote this week comes, of course, from Inception, directed by Christopher Nolan. You mustn't be afraid to dream a little bigger, darling. We'll see you next week. Until then, have fun. <laughs>